Hello again, everybody, and welcome into another edition of Political Beats, presentation of National Review. Find us online on Twitter at political underscore beats to join in the conversation. Tell us we're right or, or wrong. Uh, also, subscribe via iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, nationalreview.com as well. You can find us there. And we ask you to listen, enjoy, share, and leave reviews as well in uh, all those places, or at least as many as possible. My name is Scott Bertram. You can find me on Twitter at Scott Bertram. My tag team partner, as always, standing by, Jeff Blair. Jeff! Hey, you know, uh, times were tough, but I have to say I'm beginning to see the light. I'm set free to find another illusion, Scott. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff's had a rough week, and so I think uh, you know, this would be a nice little escape for you. Indeed. Oh, yes. You can find uh, Jeff on Twitter at... Run, 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 so to speak. (laughs) You can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. And we welcome in our guest this week for this edition of Political Beats. Uh, He covers courts and the law for Slate. You can find him on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. And he is Mark Joseph Stern. Mark, thanks for joining us here on Political Beats. Thanks so much for having me on. It's quite a pleasure. Uh, and before we get to the uh, the artist, the band, you know, Political Beats, we talk to people in politics, covering politics, around politics, analyzing politics about nothing political whatsoever, but only about music. And specifically our guests' favorite or, or, or most interesting bands, whatever our guest wants to discuss. And before we get to that, though, we'd like to find out a little more about who's joining us on the old program. So we ask you, Mark Joseph Stern, how did you get to your current current position? At Slate's? How did I get there? How did you kind of get involved in the whole political uh, realm? Oh, goodness. Well, I'm, you know, the truth is that I'm just not very good at that many things in life. Uh, I discovered that early on. Um, I am pretty good at reading things. I'm not bad at speaking. Uh, but when it comes to stuff like math, science, you know, loved it in school, was pretty terrible at it. So I uh, did a lot of reading. I uh, went to Georgetown here in Washington, D.C. Um, I, you know, just hobnobbed with all of these scumbags who are the future politicians of our country. Uh, And then for lack of anything better to do, went ahead to Georgetown Law. Uh, You know, kind of enjoyed law school, but wasn't sure I wanted to practice law at least straight away. Excuse me, Mark, I must correct you. That is a very prestigious law center. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Georgetown University Law Center. We all remember that when we were applying, that it's not a law school. I've always loved that way. Yes, I have this fight with our copy desk all the time because they always change it to Georgetown University Law Center or GULK. And I'm always like, (laughs) I went there and I feel like as a graduate who turned over an immense amount of money to this institution, like I should be able to call it whatever I want. And I'm always overruled. It's really, it's really horrible. Um, I'm sorry for interrupting you, though. What were you saying? No, no. Yeah, yeah. So GULK was, you know, it was a great experience. I took the bar. I became a lawyer. But I said, you know what, lawyering seems like, uh, like you know, not a path I'm interested in going directly down at the moment. So I uh, began doing legal writing full time for Slate, where I cover the courts and the law with my marvelous colleague Dolly Lithwick, and I get to actually go down to the Supreme Court and sit in on arguments all the time, which is frankly all that I've ever wanted to do in my life, and so it's pretty much a dream job. 
that's a pretty good description and a pretty good way to end up, I suppose. Yeah, um, not a bad place to end up in a dream. Yeah. So Mark Joseph Stern joins us on this uh, edition of Political Beats. And we now turn our attention to his chosen band, which is uh, one of the most influential bands. The famous quote from Brian Eno, their, their, their debut album didn't sell very well, but every single person who bought it ended up forming a band and then citing it as an influence. It is The Velvet Underground. And this is a band that I, I only fully embraced or listened, you know, from start to finish every piece of their catalog leading up to this episode. So by way of introduction, I will leave it to our, our, our esteemed uh, uh, other uh, our co-host and our guest on the show, Mark and, and Jeff. And we turn to Mark first. Mark uh, Joseph Stern, tell us why, uh, how you found out about Velvet Underground, why you love them so much and, and why anyone else should care about this band. Uh, well, everyone should care about the band uh, for so many obvious reasons. Uh, I stumbled upon them when I was a teenager who wanted to be cool, but was not cool. Uh, had some musical talent, but not a great deal. Couldn't really sing uh, and was obsessed with the 1960s. I listened to all of the, you know, all of the hits, all of the pop music, all of the back catalog of the big 60s bands. Um, obviously started with the Beatles went through to the Rolling Stones. I really enjoyed them. My dad is a Beatles fanatic. Uh, he would uh, exchange Beatles trivia with me, but I kind of wanted something that was my own, that was not just something that, uh, you know, I inherited from my parents. And I came across the Velvet Underground, believe it or not, in the uh, the kind of rundown Tallahassee, Florida record store that my <laughs> friend and I would frequent. Uh, at that point, there was only one. Uh, somehow in 2018, there are now, I believe, three. Um, but we were going through, and I I saw the banana album and it was so cool. And of course I thought I liked Andy Warhol. I now know that I don't actually like Andy Warhol, but you know, at the time it seemed like the right thing to like. Uh, and I, you know, I, I grabbed the album and I said, well, this, this will be a lot of fun. So I took it home and I put it on my record player, which is still sitting in Tallahassee. I've never found a great excuse to bring it to DC. Sadly. Um, my mother is its custodian and caretaker. Uh, I, I started listening and I was just immediately in love because because it sounded like a, a time capsule right out of the the coolest vision of the 60s that you could possibly imagine, right? Um, at that point, I was kind of going through like a mixture of a Rolling Stones and Bell and Sebastian phase. Kind of regret the second half of that phase these days. Um, and, you know, when it began with Sunday morning, I thought, hey, this kind of sounds a lot like the music that I love right now, but way better. Uh, and then I learned that it had essentially inspired the entire subgenre of music that I was at that point listening to religiously, mm -hmm. uh, continued listening through the album, was totally infatuated with it, immediately went back, got the other three studio albums. Uh, this was in the, uh, the really the prime days of bootlegging. So I bootlegged a ton of live stuff. Uh, I, I became infatuated, especially with the way that Lou Reed would change up so much about his songs, the structure, the tone, the, you know, the melodies, just everything about these songs he was constantly experimenting with them it seemed like they were a, a living you know a life form that were evolving as his creative genius evolved and uh, that really you know that that spoke to me it made me feel like it was a secret that with some hard work and some el 
illegal conduct on the internet, uh, I, I could sort of be let in on myself. And so I, I, you know, that's what I did for many years. It is one of the few things that I carried over with me from computer to computer, my entire Velvet Underground discography. Um, you know, even now when there's anything new released, every new box set or anniversary edition, I have to buy it. One of the, you know, I actually put down money for music, which is something that, you know, is not generally a 2018 activity. How passe. <laughs> <laughs> and and they've, they've stuck with me. I, I, I've, I've jettisoned really a lot of my <laughs> earlier passions. I've discovered as I get older, I kind of lose interest in a lot of bands that I felt so integral to me earlier in my life. But Lou Reed and the Velvet Underground, they, they've absolutely stuck with me. I remain totally infatuated by them. I think Lou Reed was one of our foremost artistic geniuses. And, you know, with the whole band together in its various forms, but especially the original iteration, I just don't think 20th century American rock music gets any better than that. It's pretty hard to disagree. You know, as for me, every single day I would be in the store and I would pass by the music racks and it would taunt me. It would haunt me. It would beguile me. I would look at it and I would be obsessed with it because I didn't know what it was and I didn't know what it sounded like at all. I had no earthly idea, but I knew somewhere in my heart that I should probably get this and I should <laughs> own this. And what am I referring to? I'm referring to the Velvet Underground's Peel Slowly and See boxed set which when I was in high school and I was looking through the boxed sets at Best Buy, I used to have a pretty good boxed set collection back in the other the, the <laughs> 90s when Best Buy was still a thing for music. I would look at it and have that banana on the cover and these you know, wonderful images on the back that had each of these albums. And what was more fascinating for me is it was like the complete works boxed set. And I thought to myself, well, Jeff, you've never heard a single note played by this band, not one note. And you're contemplating putting down like $75 to buy their complete works. <laughs> what kind of a fool are you? And I guess I just decided that I was the kind of fool who pays sight unseen for the complete works of an artist he's never heard of. I did this, by the way, again later on in college with Joy Division. Talk about a gamble that really paid off well there as, you know, also. So I went and bought that Velvet Underground box set, Peel Slowly and See. I had no, knew nothing about the band except that they were important. I'd seen them constantly referenced. I knew Lou Reed from Walk on the Wild Side. I hadn't heard mm -hmm. any of any Lou Reed's solo material beside that. Um, so it just hit me upside the head. The first thing I listened to, unfortunately, was that demos disc that, that, that opens at these really tuneless 1965 demos. And I thought, well, I made a terrible mistake. <laughs> but then you get to disc two of that set, which is the Velvet Underground and Nico. And it opens actually with the single version of All Tomorrow's Parties. And you hear the, you know, the bass line just gently thumping in the background. And then John Cale... Piano comes in, and then was like, This is fascinating music. And from that moment, I was hooked.
things. And what I also found myself thinking is that the supposedly difficult material on this set wasn't difficult to me. I didn't mind the noise experiments. I didn't mind the feedback. I didn't mind the fact that Lou Reed couldn't sing, and neither could Nico, and neither could Doug Yule for that matter. Nobody in this band could carry a tune in a bucket. It didn't matter, really. What I found fascinated by was the the artistry of the songwriting. I think there was a, a, a phrase in the liner notes where uh, Lou Reed is being interviewed and he says, like, yeah, these are supposed to be simple songs, songs that anybody can play, which I find to be really kind of a, a telling tribute to the greatness of the VU. So these songs are actually very easy to write. And yet nobody wrote them except Lou Reed. So that, you know, if you can write a song that sounds like it's been in existence for a very long time and that only required, you know, a couple of simple chords to put together. You're doing something right. And I always thought, well, okay, that's the VU. They're pretty great. There were a couple scattered live songs on that boxed set. Uh, but then what I did is you know, I started getting stuff that wasn't contained there, and I bought the live album, Live 1969. This is a two-CD set um, that was released, I think, in 1974 originally. And that is the moment where I went from simply like admiring the Velvet Underground and saying, okay, this is a good band, this is an important band, to adoring the Velvet Underground. And to the point where I consider them one of the four or five greatest live groups in the history of rock music uh i actually as we'll see don't really rate their studio albums that highly uh especially after you've immersed yourself in what their live performances were like a lot of the studio stuff will give or take a few tracks some stuff unloaded particularly just feels like it's secondary it feels like it's the way you think about the grateful dead's material in the studio grateful dead were, were far more hapless in the studio than the velvet underground were but it's the same thing that like the, these are springboards for as mark said the amazing live reinterpretations they would bring to this music but they're more than that too because they're really well written songs and the lyrical genius that reed brings to them is something that hasn't paled now in the 60s he was so transgressive bringing all these themes you know the you know, sort of drug use alternate sexuality sort of the gritty you know realities and almost um I want to say you know, it's almost an exploitative look at urban life. But, uh, you know, in the present day, that stuff is stuff that everyone has done. And yet it still feels more authentic and more interesting coming from Reed than it has done from a thousand imitators who have come after them, including, you know, a lot of people who explicitly pay tribute to him. So like when Bowie was doing his Lou Reed moves, um, I thought to myself, well, OK, that's mildly interesting. It's good to see who influences Bowie. But Bowie was never very interesting to me when he was trying to be Lou Reed. He was far more interesting when he was trying to be david bowie my thesis there is because there's only one lou reed and there only ever has been and everybody else who has been imitating him has giving giving you a shadow uh, of the real mccoy and you know now that he's gone i think it's safe to say there's never going to be another one like him so that's what i love about the vu
Well, you want to dig right into the material, guys? Yeah, sure. I mean, the place you start is, of course, well, I guess maybe you start with some history, right? Who, who, who are the members of the Velvet Underground? Obviously, we've spoken about Lou Reed. He's the lead singer. He's the songwriter. He's the guitarist. Uh, he's the lead guitarist. Uh, but, you know, where did he come from? This is not just some guy who grew up on the streets in New York City. He actually is like an art student, is an English major, went to Syracuse and like wrote short stories and like mm-hmm. was a, a protege of Delmore Schwartz, who's a short story writer there. You know, of course, he also had his own like very weird background words. I think his parents like submitted him to electroshock therapy when yeah. he was in high school because he had a, I think, you know, I think they were afraid he was gay. I seem to remember it being something like that, that like they wanted to shock the gay out of him, which is, just, just terribly retrograde kind of a thing. Um, uh, he met um, Sterling Morrison, who was the, the rhythm guitarist for the band, uh, and then they met John Cale, who was the played viola and he played bass and that is the part of it that introduces the real avant-garde aspect because kale was a student uh, of avant-garde music and when he played the viola he didn't play it like <laughs> in a beautiful way he he made it a very screechy scratchy sound he played it to discomfort you he played it to add touches and colors to songs and he was also a songwriter in his own right and then the final piece of course is maureen tucker which is you know it's 1965 66 and you have a, a female drummer in the band uh this is, you know, what, 30 years before the White Stripes. So uh, we were really kind of cutting edge here. And uh, she played these very primitive but, all, but very satisfying tribal beats. I don't even think she ever used cymbals in her, uh, in her kit because Lou Reed apparently hated cymbals. He thought that they just ended up cutting out all the high frequencies on the vocals and the guitars. So you had this very primitive ensemble uh, that was based around Reed's songwriting. And they might have gone nowhere fast had it not been for the fact that they fell in with Andy Warhol. Now, now, Mark, you told me you said you once thought you were a fan of Andy Warhol, but you realize you aren't now. Do you want to explain uh, who Warhol is and how he matters to this story? Uh, sure. Uh, so Warhol was at this point a kind of leader of the avant-garde art movement in New York City. He had his factory uh, where all of his cool artist friends could hang out and make all kinds of installations, short films, uh, silkscreen productions, paintings. Um, and he decided that uh, I-, I believe he heard uh, an early performance of uh, Lou Reed and at least some of the original members and decided to bring the Velvet Underground under the factory's aegis. Is that correct? Yeah, that's about right. So, like, you know, Warhol, here's the funny thing is that, you know, Warhol got them basically their record deal. He made them a thing just on the back of his own reputation. But Warhol didn't really know anything about music. You know, what's what's Warhol's line? I'm deeply superficial, right? Right. He, he, he was fascinated with the Velvet Underground as an image. Right. He saw, like, you know, Lou Reed in his sunglasses and his leather jacket, you know, singing about these these very outre subjects uh, and, and looking all mean and, and urban and authentic. And he thought, okay, Oh, that's what I want in the band. These four, you know, basically New York City hipsters, essentially, the 60s version of that. Be the death of me. my life <laughs> because a man I to my vein needs to a center in my head and then I'm better off than dead 
um, the opposite of like you know hippies or like you know counterculture stuff. These guys were were mean and they they didn't take any crap from anybody. That was the kind of thing that Warhol felt was the glamorous addition to the scene that he was putting together. And then the other thing Warhol did is, you know, again, this is something that only somebody who isn't really a, 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 a music producer or a music lover would do. He says, okay, now I have this great band. I'm going to produce the album. Hey, you know what you need to do? You need a female vocalist. You need somebody who really jazz up your sound, give you some more glamour. Who are you going to do? I've got this European model who barely speaks English and can barely sing, and she's going to be great for you guys. And who is that? That is Nico, uh, the famous Nico, this very blonde, ultra ice queen Aryan supermodel. Um, I believe she's from Germany. Yes. Um, who sings on the first album, The Velvet Underground and Nico, uh, an album that is produced only in the barest sense of the term by Andy Warhol. It's he really produced by Tom Wilson, the same <laughs> guy who did Like a Rolling Stone for Bob Dylan and uh, Bringing It All Back Home. And uh, the Mothers of Inventions were only in, in it for the money, among other things. And this is the first Velvet Underground album. It was recorded in 1966. 1966, before Revolver. This album was recorded. These songs are old. They date back to 65. This band was so far ahead of the curve, although it was not actually released until 1967 because of all sorts of issues. So I guess the place we start is with the first album, The Velvet Underground and Nico. A lot of people say this is the most important debut album in the history of rock music. I'm not sure I'd go that far, but boy, it has a formidable legacy. And so I love your description of Nico there, by the way. I think that's exactly right. I think I would only add the word Teutonic if you left that out. Uh, yes. Teutonic and Aryan definitely go together. Um, the severity of her presence, I think, also is what drew Warhol in, right? Because he loved the 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 cool, shady, hipsterish aesthetic of the band themselves, right? And if you look at the the promotional material of that era that they were putting out, it's really, really good graphic design. And I can't can see, even though Nico could not sing or speak English and didn't seem to understand exactly what she was doing there, not that any of us really understand, I, I do see a kind of Warholian logic to throwing this, this ice-cold Teutonic princess uh, atop this rollicking, raging, standoffish 60s band and just seeing what happened, what came out of it. Because that's like the most, that, that's Warhol's art, right? Just throwing stuff together and seeing what comes out of it. These it violent does, contrasts, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it does make some sense to me in retrospect. Still don't like the guy, but it makes some sense. <laughs> so, Scott, I guess we're going to start with you since you're, you're the, the VU skeptic among us here. Are, what are your thoughts on that first album? First of all, if you're going to tell me that it's, it's, it's not easy to listen to and it's not very well produced, we all agree already, so don't worry. I was not going to, uh, to say that. And I wouldn't say I'm a skeptic either, just that I had not taken in the entirety of the, uh, of the Velvet Underground catalog, catalog before getting set for the show. And one thing uh, I also wanted to mention before we get to the album is, you know, Lou Reed coming from uh, a background of, uh, I mean, he's a, he, he is really a songwriter. I mean, he's a songwriter. He wrote songs for Pickwick Records. Uh, he's kind of right. a song fixer in a way. So you come at these first, uh, well, especially the first two albums, they're kind of atonal and, and, and the songs aren't, aren't what you consider prime for radio. But, but Lou Reed, you know, was, was, was working in a, in a situation where he was, actually at least uh, attempting to write hit songs for for people on the record label so that that's where he comes from this uh this is such a stark album and um i know we want to talk about a lot of our live output but i was listening to the the 66 show the the valleydale ballroom show where they, they play obviously a lot of stuff from this album 
And I think about trying to be there in 1966, uh, hearing Venus in Furs live, and then having it followed up by Lou Reed saying, this is a song called The Black Angel's Death Song. That seems, that's out there, right? And and that is what the the record represents. Look, I'm waiting. For, but, by the way, may, or maybe you're not familiar with the story. This actually is how, I just, I just remembered it. This is how Andy Warhol found them. They were in a club, I think in like early 66 or, or late 65, and they played the Black Angels death song. Mm. And it was so cacophonous that the owner of the club yes. came to them and said, if you ever play that again, you're effing fired. And so the, the, immediately the next thing Lou Reed did is called for it and they played it again and they got fired that moment. And Andy Warhol just happened to be in the club watching it happen. And that was when he said, all right, I want you guys to be my band. So, yeah, that, that's exactly the, the contrast that you got out of that was what he was going yeah. for. Yeah. This is a song we haven't done a really long time because it used to empty clubs. And, uh, isn't it? As a matter of fact, when a club wanted to close for a while, they used to get in touch with us and ask us to play this song because, they, you know, anyway, I really, so it's a song called The Black Angel's Death Song, which uh, goes very, very fast, so you probably won't be able to understand any of the words, but it starts out, um, the myriad choices of his face has themselves out upon a platform to choose, which translated means, <laughs> the whole thing's like that. The myriad choices of his fate set themselves out upon a plate for him to choose. Not a ghost-bloodied country all covered with sleep where the black angel did weep. Just knows that he's cheating the East gonna choose. That's the first verse. There's six of them. It's about choice. So, so you can keep up with it. We can too. set themselves out upon a plate for him to choose what had he to lose not a ghost bloody country all covered with sleep where the black angel did weep just an old city street and he's gonna choose uh, and, and, you know the songs themselves uh, you know Mark mentioned uh, Sunday morning I'm waiting for the man which is largely kind of a, a, a garage rock feel to it, but what a stark description. And that's, you know, the songs aren't necessarily for the glorification of, of, of the lifestyles that are, that are depicted and, and read so good at these character studies uh, through, through the Underground's career. And, you know, I'm waiting for the man is a guy who goes into Harlem and is waiting on a street corner for his heroin dealer. $26 worth, which I, I found was $191 today, in case you were wondering. Uh, hey, but, thank you for doing that. <laughs> I've always wondered. Yeah. But that's that's a fantastic song and a fantastic story that Reed paints in this barrel house style piano that goes through. It's a wonderful track. Uh, and I mentioned Venus and Furs before, which is this S&M bondage kind of song. You know, taste the whip. And when I hear that, of course, I I, I just cannot uh, not think of Spinal Tap and Smell the Glove. And I don't know if the two are related, but I'll just I'll leave that there. Kind of a vaguely Middle Eastern feel to it uh, in terms of the vibe and the electric viola that's, that's played by uh, by Kale. Uh, 
There She Goes Again is a wonderful song, and especially the way they play with tempo. It's actually stolen. Uh, one of the riffs is borrowed from a Marvin Gaye song. But, uh, you know, the, the, the solo break actually slows down in the song before it comes back at double tempo for the very end of the song. And, and I, I love that track as well. And I'll let someone else uh, handle heroin. I do want to ask, because uh, Jeff plays a little guitar, right? You play guitar. Indeed, yes, I do. So tell me, because I don't at all, uh, the ostrich guitar tuning that, that Lou Reed, I guess, invented and, and was playing with on this album and other songs, all the strings are tuned to the exact same note. What does that mean as a guitar player? Tell me. I mean, what that means as a guitar player, and I've never even tried this because you need really high gauge strings in order to do it, or else you'll snap your strings. <laughs> in other words, because you know it's it's E A D G B uh, when you when you tune, mm-hmm. and you're going to have to tune them all down. Uh, it, it's something similar to what happens when you get an open tuning, like okay. an open D tuning or an open G tuning. And why he calls it the ostrich is that everything is octaves, so you have a high E, a low E, a high D, or you know something like that. And I'm not sure which songs on this are like that i do think rock and roll off of the live version of it that they played at least which is on the live 69 uh, has that tuning and, and i remember once trying to just do the top four strings to do to figure out how it works <laughs> um but it, it's not a tuning i've ever really attempted because i tried it once and i snapped four strings on my guitar all at once uh, but that's the <laughs> thing about the the songs in this album is that you've got to know that they're in like some funny tunings or right. else when you try to play them the way you hear them on the record, it's going to be really impossible. It's going to be really, fin- you know, hinky chord fingerings and things like that. But yeah, I mean, it's just a way to get, as with all tunings, I mean, Sonic Youth was the same way, that, or Joni Mitchell for that matter. Mm-hmm. The, the reason you use these funny tunings is to get stuff that you can get out of a guitar without having to be the virtuoso who can play it in standard tuning uh, you know, with spider fingers or something like that. You know, Joni Mitchell became great at playing in acoustic folk tunings because her hands were too small to play bar chords. She, you know, she had trouble extending her index finger across the, the neck of the guitar. Uh, so she just started messing around with tunings and became famous for it. And that's really with this. I'm just soaking up that incredible insight into the guitar on this album, which I'd always wondered about. I do not play any guitar. I only play piano, which does not uh, entail these uh, tuning issues. (laughs) And it's actually quite easy to replicate much of the uh, piano and and, and keyboards uh, of the VU's studio output, although a lot of it has kind of like weird kale effects uh, that we can talk about later. But, uh, you know, I'm glad you highlighted Sunday Morning and Waiting for the Man. I think have long thought that those are really the only two songs on this album that I think do sound better as the album version, right? That with Sunday Morning has that amazing Celesta, which was Kale's idea. Apparently, John Kale just saw it sitting around the studio and said, hey, how about we use this? And it worked out beautifully. And I, and I love Lou Reed's delivery. There's just something kind of soft and paranoid and uh, innocent about it that you know he doesn't often replicate elsewhere watch out the world's behind you there's always someone around you who will call it's nothing at all Sunday morning and I'm falling Uh, 
and Waiting for the Man, the studio version, is very different from how it was typically performed live, especially later on. It was often slowed down, given a kind of swinging feel. And I really, you know, I like that. I listen to it a lot. But the hard driving, just relentless force and energy of this studio version, it blows me away every time. I, I don't think it gets any better than that. I know it's kind of a crappy sounding recording, but it's it's the one for me. For uh, me, for me, the studio version of "I'm Waiting for the Man" sounds like Lou Reed is trying to score meth, whereas the live <laughs> version sounds like he's trying to score heroin. They're just that's a complete a difference. That's a beautiful way of putting it. Definitely a little bit of a foreshadowing of white light, white heat. Right exactly. There. Exactly. It's so agitated. It's probably the most aggressive rock song they ever did, other than White Light. Baby, don't you holler, darling? Don't you ball and shout? But I love that. I just I can't get enough of that. And and, it, and even then, it doesn't have the cacophonous, discordant guitar squeals and feedback that we get on the on the next album. And so there's a, a, just a clarity to it that I find very very appealing. The rest of the songs, I I generally prefer the live versions, and we can talk about which ones. Um, I, I find the studio recording of All Tomorrow's Parties a little bit boring, and I think that's a shame because uh, it, it's a great song. I think the tune is really beautiful and I actually think Nico's delivery is decent, but it just sounds a little muffled to me. It sounds uh, like damp dampened uh, i don't know how to put it it's it's not the best and i think it kind of stifles a great song and i think this version of heroin you know heroin is a classic it's hard to botch heroin but i think that it, you know mo tucker's was a genius percussionist but i think she almost sort of underdoes it on heroin i think there could be there is in other recordings a little more momentum building and this one at times feels a little stagnant you definitely feel like lou reed is lying across a bathroom floor with like a hypodermic needle in his arm uh, just like singing this into a microphone. Um, and the, 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 this recording of Black Angel's death song, I think it's probably the closest to John Cale's vision for this song. I can't say it's ever been my favorite, but that Genesis story uh, of uh, them performing it and then getting fired performing it again you know, <laughs> earns it a place in my heart, no doubt. Right. Uh, I, I tend to get really excited and skip next to European Sun, which is kind of a Dark Horse favorite for me. Hmm. Uh, it, it's it's so much fun. It's so rollicking and so snarling. And the sound of all of those plates crashing yeah. is just one of my favorite, like, <laughs> F moments in on, on the album. And so I, you know, I, I tend to skip over the screeching viola from the previous track just so I can get to those screeching plates on the next one. Your European sun is gone. You better sit so long. Your clouds get you goodbye.
about uh, the Velvet Underground and Nico, the debut album, is that, you know, as Mark says, so many of these songs to me are so much more <clears throat> powerful when they're played in live performance. But I differ, I think, with, uh, with Mark on which ones those are. And I also have some criticisms of the remaining pieces. So, for example, if I'm going to actually criticize songs, Venus and Furs, I, I, I don't know. I think it's, it's a little bit too um, – I contrast it with I'm Waiting for the Man. That is a really gritty tale of like problems in urban living, you know, going out to, to score drugs. And it still sounds real and raw and unaffected even today. And I love that the line I love from that song is that he's never early, he's always late. Yeah. First thing you learn is that you've always got to wait, which is like you can just see like a guy who's like jonesing. He's like, oh God, I got to get my fix. I got to get my fix. The agitation just comes through so well on that line. But then I look at something like Venus and Furs and I I think it's a little overwrought, you know, kiss the boot of shiny, shiny leather, you know, whiplash girl child. I come on, you know, it's, it's a nice little drone, but I don't really think the lyrics do it any favors. It, it, it's that, that moment where, as I said at the beginning, it's, it's a little bit sort of conscious, self-consciously exploitative. And I've never been a fan of Bev European Sun either. I remember when I was first listening to this album on the box set, I was like, okay, these are all very tuneful pieces. And then that bass line said, do, 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 I was like, okay, what's this? And then as Mark says, the plates crash, the chairs get scraped across the room. And I'm like, this is just a mess. <laughs> and I, I've never deviated from my opinion on that. So I can criticize a lot of these songs in various ways. But I will say this. Sunday Morning was never better than it was played on this album. And it isn't just that Celeste that Mark identifies the you know dun, 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 little plunky thing. Uh, it's also this very subtle drone that Kale plays. I don't know which one of them he's overdubbing and which one he's playing live because he's doing both for sure. But he plays the viola on this. And it's the only time on the album where he plays it in a, in a, a melodic sense as opposed to like making screeching noises with it but it's beautiful it plays in this very low drone sunday morning and it almost without being discordant or angry it perfectly gives you that queasy sound that queasy feeling that's the sense you know i mean what is the lyric it's you know, you know sunday morning somebody's stumbling home in the in the you know the, the lights dawn after like a really long saturday night of, of doing things that he probably would prefer not to remember you know watch out the world's around you there's always somebody looking um got that paranoid feeling and it contributes so well to that paranoia without ever having to you know raise its voice or kind of get out there and draw too much attention to itself and then the other song i think and i'd say this is the best song on the record i'd say this is one of the five best songs that velvet underground ever recorded and it's certainly nico's finest moment of all time is femme fatale which i am just absolutely floored by i think it's it's such a perfect portrait reed always talked about he says like you know you know nico and the velvet underground they weren't exactly a great fit but at some point i, I started writing for her and using her as my muse and so he wrote two songs on this record that really were um in that sense, Femme Fatale is one which is so beautiful. You know, you're written in your book, you're written in her book, you're number 57, have a look. She's going to play you for a fool because, and then there's just a great melody because everybody knows she's a Femme Fatale. The thing she does to please, that's a beautiful melody from a guy who wasn't known for writing these beautiful soaring melodies. That's a great chorus. That's a great song. R.E.M. did a cover of it. R.E.M. covered a bunch of, of Velvet Underground songs in their early years. None of them are that good except for version of Femme Fatale, where Michael Stipe actually can sing that chorus the way it deserves to be sung.
everybody knows The things she does to please She's just a little tease See the way she walks Hear the way she talks Cause everybody knows What a lovely piece. And the other one we wrote that was very symbolic is I'll be your mirror. I'll be your mirror, reflect what you are, mm-hmm. you know, like in the good and the bad. And it's obvious that he actually got into a mindset where he was able to use this weird, you know, matchup that Andy Warhol had, for- Andy Warhol had forced upon him to, to come up with some pretty interesting artistic takes. So this album, of course, is so influential and so widely loved and as I, as you know brian eno said everyone who bought a copy started their own band uh i've never thought it was the velvet underground's best album for all those reasons because the songs are better live because i don't like some of the songs because the production is strange but nothing i or you or mark can say about this is going to affect its reputation in the slightest it's a monument of popular music it is the album that first introduced all of these very dreary and dark and gritty themes into sort of the bloodstream of popular music and for that you know it it deserves very justifiably its place in rock and roll legend okay i have one question for you jeff before we move on from this one yeah do you prefer the nico led femme fatale and i'll be your mirror or do you prefer the later lou reed led version i I absolutely prefer nico's version because it's a song that should be sung by the woman for some reason even though like when when reed sings it he's singing about a woman who's a femme fatale and he's warning you away but it's somehow it, it cuts more deeply when it's her singing about it because you kind of think, is she singing about herself? Is she singing about someone she knows? I, I don't know. I feel like there, there are layers of irony that are attached to it with Nico singing. And I also think she does a good job with it vocally in a way she doesn't sometimes with a lot of the other songs that she was given to sing by the band. So, yeah, I prefer both of those in her mouth to Lou Reed's. Yeah. I agree. I think I think that she performs them really well. I think it's because she's so good with that kind of droll yet sing-songy harmony, right? right? That she does not whip out for a song like All Tomorrow's Parties where she's severe and Teutonic. Exactly. She has that kind of vulnerable sound on these that just carries over beautifully. Exactly. Yep, that's my thought too. Political Beats, Scott Bertram, Jeff Blair, and with us this week is Mark Joseph Stern. Covering courts and the law for Slate. Find them on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. We discuss the Velvet Underground. Next album, one year later, 1968, it's released White Light, White Heat. Um, this, this, is, <laughs> this is an abrasive album. It's an assault um, on, on not just, uh, I guess, your ears in some ways, right? But it's also an, an assault on, 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 on culture, kind of carrying over from the first album as well. Nico is gone. Uh, Andy Warhol is gone. The album recorded in two days. Uh, one take, famously, for Sister Ray, which I know is one of Jeff's absolute favorites. Um, and I will say, here's what I want to say about this album, is that there is not one uninteresting moment on this album now, now maybe you're going to come away and say it's it's a little too cacophonous i don't like it being so loud or you might you might have some takeaways that you don't like i suppose but there's not a portion of this album that is uninteresting i mean something like the gift 
in which you hear music in the right channel and a story, a short story of Lou Reed's being recited by uh, Kale in your in the left channel. I'm paying attention to both, and it's incredible. Um, and the story about someone mailing himself to like the story is interesting and the music is interesting at the same time. Um, here she comes now, which is probably the the lightest uh, song on the album, the lightest moments on the album. Uh, vocally, I think is magnificent from from Lou Reed. You know, Jeff said he's, he's not much of a singer, and that that's probably true. I think here she comes now is a really great vocal turn by Reed, and boy, do I hear a lot of. I guess it's reversed, uh, but I hear a lot of Paul Westerberg uh, in that delivery from Here She Comes Now uh, from The Replacements. Um, and then, the, you know, the second sound of the album is mainly dominated by Sister Ray, which, again, I'll, I'll leave certainly for Jeff to, to handle, although, man, it's 17 and a half minutes of, of uh, it, it is just an amazing amount of, 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 of music, and um, it's loud, and it's it's not always... <laughs> on key it's not always on tempo but it's just the band doing whatever they want for seven do it once and do whatever you want with the instructions i think for, for the band and then i heard her call my name is one of my favorite uh songs from the velvet underground just a loud aggressive and, and those those atonal guitar solos gloriously uh just atonal solos from lou reed and it's uh, th- that relentless simple drum beat throughout the entire song i hadn't really noticed or made note of the fact that there are no symbols in these songs but certainly on i heard her call my name you sort of notice because there there is nothing except that relentless simple drum beat So much of what I hear on White Light, White Heat, I hear just a couple of years later from, I mean, there's certainly a pretty direct connection to, uh, you know, like the New York Dolls and the scuzz and the attitude that is brought by the New York Dolls and David Johansson. A lot of that comes right here on uh, on White Light, White Heat. I think this is a terrible album. I think this album (laughs) is an absolute piece of garbage. I think it is one of the most overrated records in the entire history of rock music, and I have half a mind to believe that the only reason people rate it so highly is because Lester Bangs pulled a cosmic <laughs> prank on the world by praising it to the skies and then had the poor taste to accidentally overdose and die before we realized that he was just punking all of us. <laughs> that is, yeah, 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 that's, yeah strong opinions that's here one on of the, the political strongest beats, right? takes we've had in our, in our 34 episodes. All right. Here is my objection to White Light, White Heat. These are some of them, at least, are good songs recorded absolutely terribly. This album, I find no fun to listen to. Then there are a lot of songs that I just don't think are good songs. Unlike you, Scott, I don't like the gift. I think it is it is 
an interesting listen precisely once where you actually are following the story and you want to hear what's going on with it. And then once you hear the punchline and you're like, okay, great. Then you, you know, the next time you put on the album, what is it? It's eight minutes of just a repetitive groove. You're just shurgling along there with no real dynamic changes, no real modification in the chords. It just goes on and on and it does nothing. It doesn't grow or change in any way. I have no time for it. Lady Godiva's operation, eh, I don't know. That, the whole switching off on vocals things is done so clumsily that it just doesn't seem to hold together as a piece. I heard her call my name. It's just like getting a screwdriver in the ear for me, honestly. I don't like the song. I like the idea of just putting the craziest, most feedback-heavy guitar solo into a song as you could. That's a very worthy idea. It's a very Velvet Underground kind of an idea. It just doesn't come off of here, and I think one of the reasons for that is the horrible production. And then, the worst of all, is Sister Ray. I am one of the biggest fans of Sister Ray on the planet. I have probably like 35 versions of it. I have literally every single live performance of Sister Ray that exists, that circulates. Every single one of them. From 1965 to 1970, I've got them all. Some of them run 45 minutes long. Some of them run a very modest, blinking, you missed it, 20 minutes long. <laughs> I don't mind long songs. And I think Sister Ray, when played live, is probably the Velvet Underground's single greatest piece of music. It is the, the, the song that actually proved to me. You couldn't get it on the live 1969 albums, actually, ironically enough. You had to wait until the Quine tapes came out to really hear some good copies of, of Live Sister Rays from 1969, the really long ones where they stretch out. love it there it has dynamics it goes in and it goes out they play it at different tempos they really mess around with the structure of the song with the narrative on the record it is just a monochromatic 18 minute piece of sludge and i i i find it to be unbearable simply because it goes on and on and it ne even white light white heat a great song live it's they, they, they don't they can't keep their rhythm straight on the song the recording is a, of the song is, is the drum beat isn't 
they, they can't keep time for crying out loud. Why didn't they do another take for God's sake? I don't understand. After saying all those, I will say that Here She Comes Now is probably one of the five best Velvet Underground songs ever released. It's a shame they never performed it live. I'd have been very interested in seeing how that one came off. Maybe there's something about the tunings that they couldn't really bring off. I love that song. I love Kale's viola in that song, which has, again, that sort of queasy but melodic underpinning that keeps you off your feet. I love Lou Reed's whispered vocals. And I love its brevity. In two minutes and it's done. That is a masterpiece. It is, ironically, on an album that I otherwise have so little time for. That is a great song. this record oh man I, I i sometimes even like to troll people by telling them how horrible i think it is because <laughs> is you know people treat it as, as as one of the all-time classic records and i don't think so and i think it's cruising by on its reputation uh so i'm gonna concur in part and dissent in part uh i think that the thrust of your take is probably correct it is no doubt poorly recorded and there's a story it might be apocryphal but there's a story that the the studio uh technician started recording sister ray and just got so tired of it that he got up and walked out and just let them finish and then came back and you know closed out um that that certainly sounds plausible to me and you're right that the recording of white light white heat is like it sounds like a like a not great demo for sure there there's simply no question uh lady godiva's operation i think i've probably listened to three or four times i really dislike it i just i just think it's a bad song it's not very it's not very good it's not pulled off very well and maybe i've listened to it more than that but it's just it feels tossed off and it's not you know, a very interesting, engaging piece. The rest of the songs, to to varying degrees, I will defend. So the gift, you know, there's something about John Cale's reading of that story, like John Cale's amazing Welsh accent, that droll, that deadpan, sing-songy Welsh voice that gets me every time and even though the story is pretty dumb right like definitely Lou Reed was no Delmore Schwartz when it came to writing short stories uh, just the pleasure of having John Cale on vocals is is redemptive to me uh, I don't listen to it all the time but I've listened to it a number of times and uh, I, I think that it probably should not have been separated into different audio like having you know the voice in your left ear and the jam session in your right doesn't sound good on headphones they couldn't have really known that back then um but you know i think it's i think again it's redeemable by friday afternoon while there was sand, it was packed in the post office and agreed to pick him up at three o'clock he'd marked the package 
Rajan, and as he sat curled up inside, resting on a foam rubber cushion, he tried to picture the look of awe and happiness on Marsha's face as she opened the door, saw the package, tipped the deliverer, and then opened it to see her Waldo finally there in person. She would kiss him, and then maybe they could see a movie. If you'd only thought of this before, suddenly rough hands gripped the package, and he felt himself worn up. He landed with a thud in the truck and was off. Marsha Bronson had just finished setting her hair. It had been a very rough weekend. She had to remember not to drink like that. And I think I heard her call my name. Look, there are better live recordings and that opening screeching guitar is is really off-putting. But the recording is not terrible. I, I enjoy listening to it. Sometimes when I'm feeling like, you know, kind of rebellious, I'll put it on. And it gives me that kind of discordant shot in the arm that I need. Uh, and here she comes now, you know, like you said, Jeff, like that's a that's a beautiful recording. It's fantastically done. The, the strange drumming, uh, all of the kale stuff in the background, the creaky, delicate nature of the whole thing. It's just really well pulled off. And and even that title track, even White Light, White Heat, even though they don't really play it right, the, the assault on your senses, you know, it doesn't even start with a second of silence. It sounds like the, the technician messed up and it starts in media res. Right. The whole thing is so, you know, so jarring, so messy, I guess. <laughs> Wouldn't know, but, you know, it's like amphetamines, right? It's the, it's the musical equivalent of amphetamines. Uh, I think Lou Reed captures what he meant to capture there. Uh, I think there's a, this this album is about attitude, and the attitude comes through, even if it's not always enjoyable to hear. There's no question that it was an, an extremely willful act on the part of the band. You know, that was one of the fun things about the box set, by the way. I'll always remember, you know, I was sitting through 17 and a half minutes of Sister Ray, and it just never ends, and it just gets more and more cacophonous. And then all of a sudden it cuts off, and then Stephanie Says starts up. This is this beautiful outtake from the same era, where it's just like a gentle acoustic guitar ballad with the violin playing in the background. And, and one of Lou Reed's most underrated lyrics, where Stephanie says she wants to know why she's given half her life to people she hates now but she's not afraid to die the people all call her alaska uh it's just a wonderful song a beautiful ballad shows that the velvet underground were perfectly capable of playing like these these very lyrical and you know sort of easily digested pieces but for whatever reason they wanted to be up up your nose. They, they think, you know, they were after having done the Velvet Underground and Nico, probably having that very frustrating situation where they couldn't get it released until like a year after it had been recorded. They just decided to go all out and record, you know, the, the most abrasive, obnoxious record in the history of rock music, which, you know, given that it was 1967, it's fair to say that they succeeded in doing. They just didn't make a good record. Uh, and that's the problem with the <laughs> VU and Nico. And also uh, with, with, with White Light, White Heat. And this also is, just need to point out, this is the 
the end of the line for John Cale. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't leave immediately. The White Light White Heat is recorded in 1967, uh, and then they tour it a little bit. Uh, and then Cale leaves, I believe, in like May or June of 68, butting heads with Lou Reed, obviously. Creative differences, the classic example of that. Um, and what happens is that they have to bring in somebody to take Kale's place. Well, what are you going to do? You're not going to find another avant-garde viola player, obviously. <laughs> you there's can't find one of those f- in the classifieds. Yeah, there's only a few <laughs> of those out there, right? So they decide to go in a different direction. They find a guy named Doug Yule, who I think is a little bit underrated in the Velvet Underground story. Um, and what does he do? He can sing. Uh, he can play bass, which is Kale's primary instrument with the band when they played live. And he also can play keyboards. And so he adds that touch to a lot of their music for the, over the next several years. And this begins uh, the sort of post Kale era of the Velvet Underground, which extends from the second half of 68 all the way to the end of the Lou Reed era of their career. And I think I'm going to say right now that this is the best part of the Velvet Underground's career for sure. It's not a knock on John Kale. I just think that, that the band sort of became a much more streamlined live act and a much more focused studio band when he left and when it be, the focus became Lou Reed's songs and just presenting them in as straightforward a way as possible, which is why the third album, the self-titled album, it's just called The Velvet Underground, remains by far for me my favorite Velvet Underground album of all time. Who wants to chime in first? Uh, well, uh I think that's as beautiful an introduction as anyone could give. I generally agree, although, you know, God help me, I think that I may like more songs on Loaded more, if that makes sense. Uh, but as a as a as an entire album, as an entity, I think this one it just comes together so nicely. Aside from the murder mystery, which we can talk about, uh, I am not a defender. Um, but you know, this this album has, I think, just the right amount of Doug Ewell. Uh, you're right that he's a little under. He's not just a talentless hack. He is a dependable guy who can carry a tune. He can play bass. Uh, He turns out to have a brother who can play drums, which comes in handy later on. Um, And, you know, he seems to get along really well with Reed. They don't have those kinds of clashes. He's happy to play second fiddle, so to speak. And this album also, I mean, it it has the songs that while they may not play on, you know, rock radio today, they are the the beating heart of VU fandom, right? What goes on, pale blue eyes, beginning to see the light, I would argue. There are problems in these times, but ooh, none of them are mine. Oh, babe, I'm beginning to see the light. Here we go again. I thought that you were mine. Here we go again. I thought that you were my friend. 
and After Hours, which has found a kind of renaissance in recent years. One of one of the very few songs with lead vocals by Mo Tucker, who played、mm-hmm. the drums for the most part. And、uh, you know, you you can put this album on from start to finish, and even again, kind of you know, accepting murder mystery. There's not a moment of discord. There's not a moment of thrashing feedback or or、uh, you know, intentional irritation. It is a beautiful album. It is just a gorgeous piece of work and a kind of hilarious contrast with what immediately preceded it in terms of studio recording. It is a total 180 from White Light, White Heat, and and partly for that reason, it's just so warm and so unforgettable. You can't stop listening to it. The excuse they make is that their their all of their amplifiers and gear got stolen during a gig out on the West Coast, so they had to go and record this quiet album instead. But I've always thought that that's just a line because come on, you know, if、yeah. you want to play an amplified rock you song, you're perfectly、one. capable of doing it. I think they were, they were trying to come up with some excuses at the time for why they suddenly went all soft and folky. But yeah, I think this is their best album. Before I get to it,、uh, Scott, your thoughts? I like it、uh, quite a bit.、Uh, Lou Reed has said he, he he didn't want to do the same thing all over again and wanted to show the other side of the band. It's just so stark. But if you're if you're running things on、uh, you know running like a like a YouTube playlist of of, of Velvet Underground, you go from、uh, the final song on White Light White Heat, Sister Ray, and directly into Candy Says. That's a little whiplash right there. I mean, Candy Says is this very、uh, very precious, light and and dreamy song with Yule doing the vocals on it.、Uh, and there's a couple of moments like that. I, I really like Pale Blue Eyes quite a bit.、Um, it reminds me a little bit of, of of even just you know Dylan stuff from. That era, just before that era, and some great lyrics. Thought of you as my mountaintop. Thought of you as my peak. Thought of you as everything I've had but just couldn't keep. Thought of you as my mountaintop. Thought of you as my peak. Thought of you as everything I've had but couldn't keep. I've had but couldn't keep. Linger on, your pale blue eyes. Linger on. And the follow-up to that, that that middle of the record, which is、uh, Jesus, which is next.、Um, Mark mentioned he didn't like the way the stereo mix was, with something happening in the left channel and something else in the right channel. I got to tell you, I actually love those kind of mixes. And there's a couple of songs on this album that are mixed that way.、Um, I know what goes on that the guitar is very loud in the left channel, and other stuff is happening in the right channel. Jesus has Reed in the left and and Yule in the right. I I like hearing that. Uh, you know, while wearing headphones and hearing the, the two sides of the song come together, literally in my head.、Uh, After hours, which Mark mentioned, I, I've always really liked. It's it's just a sweet song with Maureen doing the the, the vocals、uh, and an acoustic guitar and a bass on it. Kind of a Tin Pan Alley song style. I've always liked After Hours quite a bit. And、um, and what goes on is a great rock track. And some of the live stuff I've heard. From that era that that Jeff was kind enough to pass on,、uh, what goes on is wonderful live and the way they kind of shape shift it a little bit, and, and right toward the end, that long instrumental with the guitar and the organ kind of duel with each other. It's a sparse album. It's a quieter album. 
it's the morning after the party kind of album, but I do think it's their best album too. I, I think it's their best album. I think the lyrics here have are basically lyrics that Lou Reed has never been never bettered, uh, not not throughout the Velvet Underground's career, not throughout his solo career. I think that I, I think of a song like Candy Says, where I, that is such an unutterably sad song. I think it's about Candy Darling, who was another member of the whole Warhol clique. Uh, you know, at his at his scene at the factory, I think uh, Darling was a, a transsexual, uh, and. That's why that line, the, the opening line in that song is, you know, Candy says, I, I've come to hate my body and all it requires in this world. Candy says, I'd like to know completely what others so discreetly talk about. You know, that feeling of, you know, you know, not necessarily feeling at home in the body that you were born with and not always knowing whether people like accept you for who you are or maybe think of you as a freak and talk about you behind your back. There's such a pain, such like a vulnerability in that lyric that is is so probing from Reed. I'm so impressed with it. Um, I guess my only knock on it is I, I, I don't think Yule sings it as well as well as well as Reed could have done, I think. I think it would have been a much better song if Reed had sung it because I think he put a, brought the proper inflections, maybe the proper sense of, of hurt to those lyrics. But what a great text. Uh, and the other one, Oh, there's so many other ones, but you know, just to name one is is Jesus, which is you know, it's the Velvet Underground. You might expect it to be some sort of ironic <laughs> poke at religion. It's it's nothing of the sort. It's you know, Jesus help me find my proper place. Jesus help me find my proper place. Help me in my weakness because I've fallen out of grace. It's a prayer, and it's set to this very soft, like you know, two guitars or you know, one of one of them is just playing a very simple arpeggiated pattern. The other one's playing the sort of quote lead line. Uh, never rises above a whisper it is easily one of my favorite velvet underground songs of all time But then again, this album is stocked with highlights. We all agree that, like, the murder mysteries, the attempt at something like an experimental right. number, it's yes. the sort of analog to European Sun from Nico Album or from White Light, White Heat. This one is actually, I'd say it's better than those two, in my opinion, at least the studio version of Sister Ray. Uh, but it's just, it's chaos. You know, you have you know, multiple voices chattering in, in multiple channels. And you're never really supposed to be able to get a grip on what's being said, although I have actually sat there and tried to parse out every bit of dialogue in that mix. I did it when I was in college. 
I have my notes somewhere. <laughs> That's um, impressive. You could probably sell those on eBay. <laughs> yeah, yeah, somebody, yeah, somebody might want them. Uh, but beyond that, every other thing on this record is just, it's a masterpiece. Some Kind of Love is a great kind of quirky and, and a little bit messed up love song. Some Kind of Loves are stranger than others. Uh, and I wouldn't want to miss any of them, basically. You know, it's like, you know, give me all the kink you can. I'm, I've got an open mind. And then Beginning to See the Light, which is, I think, one of the best written rock pop songs of the Velvet Underground's career. You know, some people work very hard, but they never get it right. I'm beginning to see the light. And then it goes into that really well-written secondary, you know, but here we go again, playing the fool again. And then it goes into that wonderful outro. How does it feel to be loved? How does it feel to be loved? And, you know, yeah, Lou Reed can't quite sing this song the way a professional singer would do, but the energy that he brings to it is so much more effective than just a normal approach would be. And, of course, the last thing I want to end on is the greatest song of the Velvet Underground's career, in my opinion, and that's What Goes On. It's not a very complex text, but what it is is the reason Sterling Morrison is so beloved among rhythm guitarists. This song is about two things. It's about Sterling Morrison's rhythm guitar, which is just like you know, he just these lightning fast grooves, lightning fast pace, never misses it. He's like a he's like a clock, you know, or, or almost like he's the drum machine because he's playing this so wonderful, wonderful rhythm that interlocks with the organ. And the other thing is that I love is the organ on this. This is the my favorite version of this song isn't the studio version. It's the live version that you can find on the the live 1969 yes, album. And in fact, version. I've often said to people, if I had to give one Velvet Underground song to somebody who said, I'm only going to listen to one Velvet Underground underground song first i'd say why are you going to do that why were you going to listen to one but you know if i had to stick to this stupid task i would give them the live version of what goes on off of the live 69 albums i think that sums up everything that was great about them as an ensemble lou reed as a songwriter are very catchy hooks and uh about the energy that they brought as as a band as an ensemble uh when, when they put together you know themselves in a room and played i love this album Very well put. I will say I did not really get Pale Blue Eyes or Jesus when I first listened to this or when I listened to it really in high school at all. But when I got older and kind of revisited the album, I started to see those two songs as a kind of pairing and as the kind of ultimate expression of Lou Reed's vulnerability in his own music. And they, they go together really well. You have like a romantic, you know, a song all about romantic love in an ex extremely tender way that never descends into anything maudlin right it's 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 just a 
perfectly written song. And then you have Jesus, which the harmonies are amazing. But, you know, like you said, it's a prayer. It's a simple, sweet song you would not expect from the guy who recorded White Light, White Heat or pretty much anything (laughs) else in his oeuvre at that point. And it just works. It just does. And uh, it's miraculous. (laughs) No pun intended. Uh, So, yeah, I'm I'm definitely with you there. Maybe in the course of this conversation, I've changed my opinion about my favorite album because this one's starting to win me over now. (laughs) And I I wanted to mention, too, Jeff mentioned the live version of What Goes On, which is fantastic. And and Jeff, it it kind of primed me for some of the Velvet Underground by saying, you know, the the live stuff is, is where it's at. The live stuff is great. And in past episodes, you know how good uh, live recordings have to be to get me excited about them. I'm not I'm not usually a huge live music fan, but this, the live 1969 uh, that that's been released is some outstanding music. The live version of What Goes On is great. I, I like the uh, I think it would eventually show up on an outtake album later. But Lisa says uh, I really like that song. I mean, they 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 change things around just enough so it sounds fresh and new and that live 69 album is fantastic no disagreement with me i mean you know i don't know if we want to talk about i think this is probably actually the right time to talk about the live stuff before we get to loaded because this is where the majority of it is mm-hmm. all of the velvet underground albums have been reissued um uh with and, and the first three uh came with like extra concerts you know extra concert material from their era so if you want to hear what the velvet underground sounded in the earliest days with nico you can buy the deluxe edition of the velvet underground and nico and you get a fantastic set they were a very different band with kale and nico in the group uh then you can hear them in their white light white he's fa- heat phase with the 1967 show if you buy the deluxe version of that there is more documented recordings of the velvet underground from the year 1969 however than all of the other parts of their career put together and multiplied by three. Uh, Why is that? Because this is when they were really touring all across the country. At this point, the cult, the legend of the band had built up among the kinds of people who are going to stand in the back of the room with a wall and sack tape recorder. Uh, And because the band was very taper friendly, which is an unusual thing for a band of that era. Mm -hmm. Lou Reed would see a guy, you know, holding a microphone and carrying, you know, like, you know, like one of those clunky tape recorders. And instead of calling for security, he would invite them up to the front and say here here's here's a good place you know you might want to you know position yourself in between the speakers so you can get the best recording he loved it when people taped their shows and in fact oftentimes he'd invite them backstage afterwards so they could listen to the tapes because they wanted to see how they sounded too so we have so many great recordings from this era the place to start and i would say one of the two albums that i'll recommend at the end of the show is live 1969 now the thing is that the tapes the quality of the tapes that they used for those these were soundboard recordings but they weren't the original master tapes those have since sub- subsequently come out on this box set i'm sure that mark has it called the matrix the complete yep. matrix tapes fantastic it sounds crystal clear but you know if you're just getting into the vu you can wait until you get that the you get an edited version of that on the live 69 2 cd set and it is just a masterpiece and then the other one was a box set that was released when i was in college and just what a wonderful surprise to walk in to my local record store in like sophomore year or something like that and then see the quine tapes the bootleg series volume one there was never a volume two by the way (laughs) um uh, so it was bootleg series volume one it was three cds of tapes made by robert Quine, uh, who ended up being a guitarist for Lou Reed several years later. Um, an excellent guitarist, too, yes. no less. And he was a kid, I think he was at Washington University in St. Louis. He invited invited the band to play there and taped them there and then when they were playing in San Francisco later on that year, he taped several of their shows and 
did a really good job for an audience tape. And there's three CDs of these outtakes. And it is just a fan. It's not, it's not professional quality recording. So you have to adjust to that. But the scope and the breadth of what these guys were capable of doing live is just mind boggling. They could play like, like a one note jam called follow the leader for 30 minutes just follow follow the leader it's not a song they never released it it's just them grooving and it's absolutely mesmerizing Sister, there's a version of it. I think that's like 48 minutes long, I, and I never get bored for one second. They take <laughs> you through, they take you around the world and back again in terms of moods on that thing. And it's why I was so stunned at you know the contrast between how great they could be live that song in particular versus the terrible studio version. But yes, I just can't recommend enough. Please check out the Velvet Underground as a live act, and particularly during that 1969 era when they really were firing on all cylinders as an ensemble. Couldn't agree more. I'm now looking at the track listing and starting to get overwhelmed with recommendations of what you should go listen to live right now. But I will limit myself to a few things. I will say, first of all, the 1969 album, which unfortunately has a kind of terrible cover. Um, but it oh, is a terrible a, cover. God. <laughs> it's just awful. But it is a very good curation, right, of, of uh, a representative curation of what they were doing at that point, what they were experimenting with. I think that uh, the version of Lisa Says uh, on 1969 is fantastic. Um, yeah. This is a song that Lou Reed would, relate, would release on his first solo album. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a lot of songs on these live uh, yes. on these live yes. sets that would that are songs that Reed would later release. And yeah, it's just fantastic.
Yeah, and also in the same vein, Ocean, uh, uh-huh. which uh, there's also an outtake of. But th- this is, the I think, probably the best <clears throat> version that they recorded that Lou, Lou Reed would later release on his solo album. And it's really long, but it's it the song needs that long to, to really fully bloom. And, and I think it's fantastic. Uh, and also on 1969, uh, New Age, it's a recording with Lou Reed singing lead vocals instead of Doug Ewell. He, he sings it on uh, the, uh, the next album, Loaded, which we'll talk about. And I think he ruins it. Uh, I think this is one of the songs that Doug Ewell just totally screws up. And Reed's version of it is is makes the song worth your while. Um, those are just indelible to me. And uh, the the Bootleg series, Volume 1, the Quine tapes, of course, as you said, never a Volume 2. Although, you know, Hope Springs Eternal. There could, you know, <laughs> still be out there. The Volume 2 just waiting on eBay for one of us. Um, the whole thing is worth listening to. I would recommend, if you uh, still have access to CDs or uh, you have a high-tech car, listening to this album straight through on a road trip or just springing for the Matrix set and getting that just listening to the whole thing through on road trip because you hear how over the span of you know multiple nights in different locations how these songs developed and how reed led the band and how uh, you know the the members sort of intuitively understood at this point they've been working together long enough to get what these songs were to understand the spine of the songs they had such a perfect grasp on the spine of the songs that they were able to take them in these new directions and experimental experimental directions and almost always make them sound really 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 great and i think that particularly on the quine tapes this version of foggy notion is is significantly better than the recorded version on vu than the studio version uh which is a little too long and a little too into itself this version is just the right amount of wild uh i think it's it's perfection Again, I, I second all the recommendations that Mark made. But yeah, you know, get the VU 69 set, or if you're really feeling bold, spring for the complete Matrix tapes. It's all basically most of the same material, just sounding a lot better. And I guess that will take us to the final. This is a band that has a very short discography. Only made four studio albums. All of them have their partisans, and this is their final one. It's called Loaded. They actually changed labels. I think they went to, like, was it Warner Brothers or something like that? Um, They got dropped by Verve, their former record label, probably because they were selling no records. Who's going (laughs) to buy a Velvet Underground record? Well, everybody eventually, but not not during their lifespan. Um, So they went to a new label, and, you know, I think they had the idea like, hey, you know, why don't we just try to write some hit songs? Why don't we try to get some singles played in the charts? Uh, And this is, in fact, the place where two of their most famous songs, I think three maybe if you consider New Age, are found. And their most beloved songs as well. Uh, Those, of course, are Sweet Jane, Rock and Roll, and uh, New Age. Uh, But I will say this. I've never been a very big fan of this album. I think half of it is great fantastic and then half of it is stuff like you know 
Lonesome Cowboy Bill or uh, or Head Held High, which I think is just like Lou Reed at his, his most histrionic, and it doesn't work for me. But, uh, you know, everyone's going to want to talk about the famous songs on this. I will only say that Rock and Roll is, is another one of my all-time favorite uh, Velvet Underground songs, and I don't care if that's a cliche. I don't care if that's one of their most famous tunes of all time. Everything about Rock and Roll from the theme, which is just surprisingly innocent and upbeat for Lou Reed, you know, you know this is about a girl – you know, living in probably Long Island or something like that. Nothing to do. Uh, she hears the music on the radio. She starts dancing, and her life was saved by rock and roll. But what I love the most about it are the guitar solos. That is Lou Reed's best guitar work and his most melodic guitar. It's very trad. It's very straightforward and, like, you know, pop guitar work. But what a fantastic job he does, especially at the end when he has when the band breaks down and then they comp on the chords and then the guitar comes right back in and then he just starts singing, it was all right, it was all right, it was all right. And it's just fantastic freak out. One of the Velvet Underground's finest moments. This is going to sound so cliche as well, but I mean, Sweet Jane and Rock and Roll 100% changed my life, man. I mean, those are just two of the greatest rock songs ever put down on tape. They are, I, I felt freed in a way when I first heard them and when I became so deeply obsessed with them and would, you know, do my own performances in my bedroom because it's, it's so tempting to try to do what Lou Reed does with the vocals there. And it's impossible. I think it's totally inimitable what, what, what Reed does, but his, his performance, the attitude is so, ugh, it's, it's iconic to me. The lyrics are fantastic. And like you said, the music, the breakdown at the end of rock and roll, those opening cascading guitars and sweet Jane. Uh, oh my God. Uh, it just doesn't get any better. Can you name a better rock song? I, I mean, you can name some that compete, but I feel like it's, it's astonishing given what had come before, given how Reed had resisted so hard, you know, he had constantly said, I don't want to 
make these big studio hits. Look at White Light, White Heat, right? And then he comes out with these two songs, which you can still turn on the radio any day and hear. Uh, his range is just, uh, it just it blows me away. It's the, it's the wistfulness of Sweet Jane that always gets me at the end, yeah. you know, and anyone who's ever had a dream, anyone who's ever played a part, anyone who's ever been lonely, and anyone who's ever split apart. And then, you know, Sweet Jane, and he just starts singing it. And um, yeah, it's a song that, you know, when I was listening to these albums, again, on the box set, a lot of it I was intellectually engaged with. I was like, oh, that's interesting. That's impressive. And then suddenly I got to those, that one-two punch on Loaded, and I, it wasn't, I wasn't engaging with this music in, on an intellectual level anymore. I was moved. I was yep. just swept up off of my feet. So I completely understand why you feel that way about him, too. A tis on the jack, he is a banker. And Jane, she is a clerk. And both of them save their monies. And when, when they come home from work, Sitting down by the fire The radio does play The classical music that jam The march of the wooden soldiers All your protest kids You can hear Jack say Get it here Scott? This album was my first introduction to the Velvet Underground, in fact. I remember uh, in college, my friend Rose gave me a stack of CDs she had burned and said, you got to check these out. And it was, uh, I know it was, there was an album from the Cowboy Junkies in there. There was uh, uh, early, early White Stripes before they really broke. She was on the uh, ahead of the White Stripes curve. And then there was a copy of the Velvet Underground's Loaded, which I still have, actually, the burned version uh, that was handed to me by my friend Rose. So I might like this a little more that it's deserved, uh, maybe, b- because it was my introduction, because I've listened to it more than, than I think the other albums. Uh, but there are some hi- uh, highlights, certainly. Sweet Jane, Rock and Roll, you guys have said just about everything. Uh, rock and Roll is so joyous, and it still sounds fresh. It- it's a great song. Uh, Sweet Jane's one of the few you might actually, uh, Velvet Underground songs you might actually hear on the radio these days. Um, but, but you know, the, the album itself, you know, Maureen Tucker didn't take part uh, with anything. I don't think she was pregnant. And so she wasn't on the album. And, and Morrison was, I think, attending school at the time as well. So his contributions were limited to. I like Lonesome Cowboy Bill more than Jeff does. Uh, the, the country style twang to it. It's, 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 it's kind of Birds-esque uh, in, in its own way. My favorite song in the album, actually, I think, is the last song of the album, which is Oh Sweet Nothing, where we uh, we see and, and meet more of Lou Reed's characters, uh, poor Jimmy Brown and Ginger Brown and Polly May and Joanna Love and all of them down on their luck. And, uh, you know, to me, it's a song about being still being happy with what you have with your lot in life. If you're if you don't have a lot of money, you don't have. Uh, at the moment, uh, a love in your life, you still can find some happiness out there. And there's a great part at the end with, I think, Yule playing drums, because as I said, uh, more, or Tucker wasn't around. And it's it's kind of this, this, this drum and guitar solo that builds up and builds up and then drops out and you get one more time around with the Oh Sweet Nothing uh, uh, chorus before the song comes to an end. That's one of my favorite Velvet Underground songs and my favorite one here uh, on the album as well. Oh, say a word, say a word for Jimmy Brown. 
song too i mean it's it's as uh as you guys mentioned this is an attempt to score some hits and it's not like they hadn't been trying to score hits previously so i guess it was an extra bit of, of effort in this album but uh who, who loves the sun is a fine fine song and i like doug Yule's vocal on yeah. it too and i like that the silly you know fa 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 yep. who loves the sun i don't care that, that that's great and it's dippy which is what actually kind of makes it so amusing because again you know lou reed is far from yes. classic lou reed as you would expect and that's probably why he gave it to yule to say <laughs> yeah it's such a funny song to open an album with too it it it, it makes a very comic statement i like it too i'm a big defender of who loves the sun and of oh sweet nothing and the the songs that open and close the album, respectively, and I I think they're they're Yule's best vocal performances, um, pretty much for all of his time with the VU. I think those are two songs that Yule pulls it off in a way that Reed might not have. Reed might have made these songs sound a little too ironic or uh, sardonic or you know whatever. He would have Lou Reedified them, and I right. think they are <laughs> lovely pop songs to be sung by someone with a nice but bland voice like Doug Yule. Loves the sun. Who cares that it is shining? Who cares what it does since you broke my heart? Who loves the sun? Who loves the sun? So uh, as opposed to New Age, you want we want to talk about why you think that's such a failure. Uh, I just feel like it needs. I mean, it needs attitude. Yes, yes. It needs real build. It needs force behind it. It needs to. It needs some extra character to it. And I know it's it's funny because this is like one of their hits. This was a, a, a decent hit. It's been covered a lot. I just feel like the studio version. It has no character at all. It feels so limp to me. And I think that's mostly because. Reed, you know, isn't on the mic. I think there are probably some other reasons. It doesn't have that energy of the live performance. But it, the whole thing, it's just limp. It's just not my bag. Yeah, I, I think it's much better live. But for me, it isn't because of the um, the Yule vocal, which I don't mind as much as you do. I think Reed does a better job with it live. But I don't hate Yule's interpretation. But it's because the ending more extended on live you know you know everything from the someone's got a hold on me and then you know it's the beginning of the new age they would just jam on that for minutes and minutes at a time when they played it live and it makes it a lot more effective and a lot more hypnotic than the somewhat truncated version that you hear on the record
Yeah, totally. To me, this song is like, you know, the opening scene of 2001 where the primates are like fighting and then one of them throws the bone up and then it fast forwards the future. The, the, the album version is the primates fighting and the end is the primate throwing the bone up. And then what should happen then, <laughs> right? Is everyone following this extended metaphor? What should yeah, happen that's... then is that it all opens up into this full jam session because it's, you know, all the groundwork has been laid and there's all this build and then it should explode but instead it just ends and the, side, yeah. the whole side of the album ends and it just doesn't work for me it doesn't work at all well yeah. that brings us to the end of the Velvet Underground's discography well I guess it's not quite the end of the Velvet Underground's discography <laughs> there is, all we uh, really want to talk about boy uh, do we what do we want to say about this well you know what before we even get to it does anybody have any thoughts on the last live album they released live at Max's Kansas City from 1970 this is one of the very few recordings that actually comes from the loaded era and I'll note that Maureen Tucker isn't playing in the band at this point because, again, she's still out on like maternity leave. Does anybody really care for it? I have to say I've never been a huge fan of it myself. I don't think it's nearly as engaging as the 69 material where everybody's you know, very much locked in. Uh, I agree, and I think the Matrix tapes really kind of almost superseded it. You know, right. when when those with those out, there's not a huge reason to listen to Live at Max's Kansas City. It's mostly notable for being released when it was in '72. It shows us, you know, there was a taste for the VU Live even that early on. It, their their reputation had grown, the cult of the VU had grown enough that you know the studio wanted to put this out. But I think it was uh, also like one of maybe Reed's last shows with the band too, so it has that historic importance as well. Yeah, you can kind of hear that. He does a lot of banter in between songs. That the the, the, the right. album keeps in, and it it sounds very much like it's my last my last go around. Let's make it count, right? It, but but quickly, I was yes, say, real quickly, uh, Reed actually Reed quit before Loaded was even released, right? That's what I had had read. He quit, but he was coaxed back okay. to okay. play some shows. But yeah, the writing was on the wall. I mean, he literally, I think, like like fled to long island to like live with his parents in their basement and like worked as a clerk for a couple of, <laughs> for like a couple of months because he was done with the scene or, or maybe he was burned out I, I have to would i have to think that there was some psychological aspect to it and drugs well with lou reed you can never rule out the drug influence can you um but yeah so yeah he he ducked out and in fact it, he it wasn't really until uh, 1971 or 72 that he recorded his first solo album the lou reed the self-titled one which is kind of not a great record honestly you know i don't know if the, the guys in yes were the best choice to back lou reed um <laughs> you know but we have to unfortunately at least note so that we can make fun of it the uh the despicable Velvet Underground album without any of the original members of the Velvet Underground called Squeeze. This is what happens when Lou Reed just drops off the face of the earth. Uh, well, the manager, their, their, their very slimy manager, a guy named Sesnick, says, well, I own the rights to the name. And so he basically puts Doug Yule out there. And even Maureen Tucker was there for a little while, by the way. I think she was uh, maybe didn't, you know, didn't know quite what was going on. She left when she figured out that Reed wasn't coming back. But they actually toured, and they even put out a record called Squeeze, which is legendary. is one of the worst records uh, uh, of the rock era. And I think people are just, you know, it may not even be as bad as that, but people are just offended that there's a Velvet Underground album out there without Lou Reed on it. And it's, you know, I've never listened to it. I'm going to freely confess. I've never heard a note of it, and I'm not interested in hearing a note of it. 
Yeah, I, I was saying in preparation for this podcast, I went on the internet and tried to try to get through it, which I never have before. <laughs> and I got about halfway through the first song and I just couldn't do it. It's so it's so bastardized. I mean, you kind of have to feel for Yule because it was obviously not his brainchild, right? He didn't really want to be doing this. It was Sesnick pulling the strings. And the whole thing is so misbegotten. I think it's really better left in the ash heap of history. Uh, yep, sounds about right to me. They even released a boxed set of, of- of squeeze era live recordings it's out there <laughs> this is a thing that exists i know i can't even imagine why anyone would want to own it but it's a thing that exists and of course that brings us to the end of the show yeah uh, we have or do you have any final thoughts scott i was just doing a transition into our into our choices well then why don't you do it for us my friend we can this time of the show when we uh, dig into our two albums that you should own, five tracks that you really ought to hear from our featured artist today, The Velvet Underground. And we always allow our guests to go first. Mark Joseph Stern, our guest, Courts and Law, his beat for Slate. Follow him on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. Mark, the floor is yours for your, your two recommended albums and the five songs that everyone should hear from The Velvet Oof. Underground. This is really tough. Okay, so for my two albums, I'm going to go ahead and do the Velvet Underground and Nico, the debut album, the Banana album, because, you know, even just for those first two songs, Sunday Morning, Waiting for the Man, there was, it's an incredible piece of work. And even if the recording itself is kind of bad, it transports you right back to the factory, right back to the Warhol age, right next to, right back to seedy, gritty New York City. You know, it, it's, it's a piece of history and you want to be a part of it. You got to get that album. And then next, I think I'd put the 1969 live uh, recordings because even though it's a curation and it's not the whole thing and the sound quality is not as good as some of the matrix tapes you know it is vital i think it's indispensable and it's a good entree into the live recordings it's the right time it's the right set list it's 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 indispensable and then for my songs i'm gonna do sunday morning and waiting for the man because you know those are the two songs that bring you into the vu's universe i'm gonna do what goes on pretty much any live recording but especially from 1969 uh, I'm going to do Foggy Notion live recording. I really do love that song. We didn't get a chance to talk about it. The the music especially is fantastic. And Lou Reed's delivery, the lyrics are kind of weird, but it just works. It comes together. And then finally, I'm going to do Sweet Jane, the uh, album, the studio version on Loaded, the version that everyone knows and loves. Yeah, I know it's cliche, but that song sets you free. So those are my five. Uh, all right, my my two albums, uh, I uh, both both studio. So uh, the, the Velvet Underground, the nineteen sixty nine self title. I think it's their their best work overall, uh, with some really great highlights. And the others, I, I think I will tell you, Velvet Underground and, and Nico, the the debut, if only to to hear it, so you can can round out your your musical knowledge. It's an album that is iconic uh, for not just its, its content, but for its cover, and certainly is a reference point for many music uh, discussions, and is a, an influence on so many bands down the line. I think it's probably appropriate that if you're going to listen to two, this is one of them, so you have an idea of exactly what everyone else is, is talking about. And the music's, you know, 
music's good too. Uh, <laughs> the uh, the songs uh, from the the first album, "I'm Waiting for the Man," uh, is I think I think my favorite song from that first album. Just a great story being told by well, you know, maybe not the <laughs> not the not the morals, but the the details of the story told by Lou Reed. And I'm waiting for the man, the 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 heroin dealer, uh, is really fabulous. Uh, from uh, white Le- uh, white light white heat, I heard her call my name. So you hear those Reed solos, two of them uh, during the course of that song. Grab two from the Velvet Underground album. Uh, what goes on? I think might make an appearance on all three of our lists, and I, I'm just a really big fan of Pale Blue Eyes as well from the Velvet Underground, and from Loaded, a uh, song I talked about in detail. The last song on the album, Oh Sweet Nothing. Just a really big fan of of, of that track. Uh, and that's my five. Jeff, over to you. All right. Well, for me, uh, I think this is no surprise. I will go with the Velvet Underground, the self-titled album, uh, with the 1969 album. It's the only one of their studio records that I really think is is truly great from start mostly to finish. And it captures them at, in, in some ways, you would have thought it was their most uncharacteristic. But the more you know about the band, the more you hear them live, the more you know about Lou Reed as a songwriter. I think this is a very characteristic album for the VU. And, and that, you know, thinking of them merely as noise merchants and purveyors of chaos isn't really a full scope way of understanding what these guys were about. I think the second album is, is and, you know, I'm in complete agreement with Mark here about this, is going to be Live 1969. You can get them as two individual CDs. I would recommend you actually just suck it up and buy both discs at the same time because it's volume one and volume two is released as a double vinyl uh, set back in the day and now you know they expanded it and put it on two discs get them both the velvet underground live was an absolute powerhouse and of course as mark also says you know at one point later on you're going to want to go get the matrix tapes to have the full experience pick up the bootleg series the quine tapes and then before you know it, you're going to be a live fanatic when it comes to the vu because they were truly magnificent my five songs uh, first one is going to be femme fatale from the VU and Nico. I think it's the best song she ever sang on. I think it's one of the best pure melodies that Lou Reed ever wrote. Here she comes now from White Light, White Heat. You know I do not have a high opinion of that album, but I have a very high opinion of that song, which tellingly is the least characteristic song on that album. Jesus from uh, The Velvet Underground, the the 69 self-titled album, Mm -hmm. uh, Help Me Find My Proper Place. That was uncharacteristic for Lou Reed. That seemed like a real surprise and a real left turn. And I think it's one of their best and, and, and quietly, you know, one of their most profound songs. What goes on live, the November live take from the, uh, the, the live 1969 album. And then finally, Rock and Roll from, uh, from Loaded, which I think is, you know, you know it, it's the song that means to me what Sweet Jane means to Mark. You know, you started listening to that fine, fine music and you know, your life was saved by Rock and Roll. There we are. The Political Beats look at the career and music of the Velvet Underground. We uh, thank our guest, Mark Joseph Stern, covering courts and law for Slate. Find him there. Also find him on Twitter at MJS underscore DC. Mark, thank you so much for joining us here on Political Beats. Thank you so much for having me on. This was fantastic fun. (laughs) We're glad to have you. Jeff, we wish for uh, uh, a little better luck uh, the rest of the week for you. I would say we'll do it again next week, but I'm not entirely sure we will. Uh, We're going to have to figure that one out. (laughs) (laughs) We we will see how things come together. Uh, But we we will be back soon. In the meantime, we, of course, encourage you to subscribe and hear our old archived shows, iTunes, 
Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, and also find recent episodes at nationalreview.com. Listen, enjoy, share, leave reviews. You can find Jeff on Twitter at EsotericCD. My name is Scott Bertram. Find me at Scott Bertram. The show at political underscore beats. This has been a presentation of National Review. This is Political Beats. <laughs>